Happy Christmas. Who feels Christmassy? Come on, it's time we all felt Christmassy. My grandchildren are sending me photos of decorating various trees and things and um, Christmas present lists. So, yeah, happy Christmas. Um, Okay, first thing is an apology. For those of you who were fit enough to prance around this morning, excellent. Well done. I was not refusing to take part for any reason of elitism. It was more sorebackism. And um, when, uh, when she started waving her leg around, I mean, I thought, <laughs> great, excellent. So uh, this morning, um, I, I'm going to talk, I've got three, let's do this in three sections. Um, but effectively, it's a defense of Christmas. So where we're going to is, is defending Christmas as a thing. But I'm going to um, spend a few minutes giving you a bit of background, which some of you who may be unkind could probably call it a rant. Fair enough. Um, Then I'm going to give you an example, and then I'm going to invite you to take the Christmas story away and and in your own mind. I love mind games. Those of you who know me know I love playing mind games. Take away the Christmas story and use it um, in the way you think of it to to make the points that I'm making this morning. Okay? Okay. Right. So let's let's start with a little sort of um, background or or rant or whatever. Um, If if you read up or look at any of the great writers or philosophers of the past, it doesn't matter how many thousand years you go back, everyone seems to have the view that they live in special times, that they're in a situation which is pretty unique and the world has got to this place. And we are no different. We are in, in this exception. We are in exceptional times. Um, and I'm going to make a point that we actually are in exceptional times, <laughs> and, and others only thought they were in exceptional times. Um, if you go back 150 years, physics had got to the place where they knew everything, and the statements were being made that all that's left to do in physics is to measure things. There is one little tiny problem they hadn't quite solved, and it wouldn't be long before they solved it. This was 150 years ago, and then a group, group, it wasn't just one, it was a small group of people that got bigger, from which Mr. Einstein becomes the sort of uh, head. And all of a sudden, wow, they suddenly realized there was a whole area of physics that destroyed everything and had to go all back to the beginning again and say, well, we actually know nothing. Well, just, it wasn't that long ago we had very clever physicists telling us, oh, string theory is going to solve everything. We're going to, and we're just this far from a theory of everything. And then somebody wakes up one morning and says, do you know, we're missing 80% of the universe. And um, so they solved that problem, as John Erudite pointed out, by giving it a name. So they called it black something, black matter, black energy. And we still don't know 80% of the universe is. So we're, we're going through these cycles of knowledge that comes and goes, comes and goes, and comes and goes. And every generation is so sure it knows everything, but in actual fact, it knows nothing. So if like the first warning this morning is warnings against certainty. Okay? We don't know. We don't know. Our Christian faith is not knowing. It's being in relationship. It's being in relationship with the living God. That's what our Christian faith is about. And the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And the more the the picture just gets bigger. So we're in in a relationship. That's what our Christian faith is about. And just to take that point about science and apply it to scripture, um, I think that the Gospels particularly are under more attack today than they've ever been. It's like hunting, open hunting season on, on the Gospels. But the other side to that 
is although they're attacked more than they've ever been, I really honestly believe they are more secure than they've ever been. That the modern advances in textual criticism, which was originally designed to disprove the Gospels, has humbly, I submit, done the complete opposite. That we are now more secure about the veracity and the truth and the origin of the Gospels than we ever have been. And uh, although I'm, I'm often making jibes about different translations saying different things because we have different languages, even so, the number of translations we have today take us closer and closer and closer to what the original Gospels were saying and the original message was there. Dispense with certainty, but certainly you, can, you rely upon probability. Okay? I'm pretty confident in the Gospels we have today are pretty, pretty strong and um, more, more proved than any other time in history. So we live in this, this special time. And um, I think if we read the scriptures, there, there are two, uh, de- two areas I don't want you to fall into. The first one is, is reading scriptures with too little scholarly background. Just assuming you know it and therefore you can read it and you're right. The scholars have got a lot to offer you. The second one is reading it with too much scholarly background. Okay? And just thinking you can only understand the scriptures if you have a scholarly background. Neither are true, but we need both. So this morning we're going to look at the scripture in a very wide way. We're going to take it as a narrative story and just ask what do these narrative stories tell us as a story without looking too much at the detail. And I am particularly driving at one thing. And um, it was brought up this morning. What happened on the beaches of Dunkirk was that the king of the United Kingdom asked us to pray. And whatever we think of American culture, praying is part of the American culture. Politicians pray. And they call the nation to pray. In our culture today, there has not been a single call for prayer. And we are facing perhaps the decisions in the next week, two weeks before end of March in this country, which, without putting too fine a point on it, for less of a problem, in 1914 they fought the First World War. That's the size of the issue we're facing. For less of a problem, they fought the First World War in 1914-18. It was over trade. And that's what we've got. So we have huge problems and no spiritual input. What's happened to our country? The answer is that we have left and walked away from the Judeo-Christian culture that we've been brought up with and replaced it with something which is called multiculturalism. Now, let me ask you to look at that. Who knows what an oxymoron is? Oxymoron. Come on, what's oxymoron? Yeah, yeah, something that contains within its own statement a contradiction, right? Multiculturalism is by definition an oxymoron. How do you define right from wrong? It's not in the laws of physics. It's not written in biology. How do you define right from wrong? Answer is your culture. If you have a multicultural Society, you have no definition of right and wrong. No society can exist without a definition of right and wrong. You cannot have a multicultural society. It's continually going to be at warfare with itself. Because it's asking these questions, what is right and what is wrong, all the time. Can't happen. So we've dispensed with 
with a culture in this country and replaced it with multiculturalism, which of itself is confused. Now, I'm going to look at the Christmas story if I get time. Um, but the Christmas story leads us to the temptation of Jesus. Both Matthew and Luke, after chapter 4, looks at the temptation of Jesus. Now, let's look at this as a large narrative. Let's not get caught into, in, into the finer details. I don't mind whether you believe in the personal existence of the devil or not. That's not part of the story here. Part of the story here is there is such a thing called evil. There's such a thing which is wrong. And that is personified in this story by the devil. And Jesus confronts wrong, the devil. How does he do it? In the large picture of this narrative, what does Jesus do that confronts wrong that is evil? Four times, and four times the answer is the same. It is written. And in each occasion, the evil gives a false interpretation of a statement to Jesus. And Jesus gives a correct interpretation back. So if you take the Gospels as just old scriptures, which are just narrative, but that leads to a Judeo-Christian culture, fine. I take it more seriously than that, but fine. But you've got, how do we confront evil? Evil is the misinterpretation, and the answer is to interpret it correctly, give it back to the, to the, to the, to the other people, and let truth stand on its own feet, and truth will, will out and will change events. That's how you, that's the Judo-Christian tradition of how you confront evil, which is in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Tattooed into, into, into Christian thinking. That's how you confront evil. Now, I could be arrested for saying this, I suspect, so I have to precede everything within my opinion. Okay? In my opinion, if you look at Buddhism, what does a Buddhist, what does Buddhism teach you about confronting evil? It's passive. What do you do? You, you, you take an internal acceptance in which you basically block it out and enter into a perfect state of self-hypnosis so where you don't mind it's happening with great respect. That's what Buddhism does. What does Hinduism do with evil? It creates a hundred million gods, confuses the issue, and in many cases acquiesces. What does Islam do with evil? Well, okay, you can say that. Islam, what does Islam mean? The word Islam means submission. Islam does two things with evil. It says, one, that's our view. Two, if you don't accept it, we will violently oppose you. The, Islam's answer to, to evil is to violently oppose if you have a multicultural society and you put a group of people who believe in passivity with a group of people who believe in violent opposition, what are you going to have? Continual warfare. That's what we have. This is the effect of multiculturalism. Jesus' answer was basically logic. It was to take the problem, repackage it, and give it back to the person who 
was giving it to you. He was not violent. He didn't kill anybody. He replied with logic. So if you are an atheist, if you do not believe in, in, in the Christian message, I put it to you quite simply, which society do you wish to live in? A Christian Judaic society where the answer to evil is based upon logic and reason or a society that is bases its opposition to, to evil in these other ways. That's a simple statement. And we as Christians, over the past 40, 50 years, have fallen into a little bit of our own trap. We are such nice people, and we want to be so helpful and nice to people. We are not used to opposing. It's time we stood up and opposed. It's time we stood up and shouted and got a little bit less um, complacent and shouted against what's happening in our societies and in the West uh, and uh, overall, where the idea of a judo multi uh, Christian judo culture which opposes evil by logic and reason is replaced by cultures which are multiculturalism, which have no definition of good or bad and lead to perpetual warfare, which is what history tells us happens. Look at the history of the Middle East and whatever else. That's all my opinion. Please don't arrest me. I don't want to be arrested quite yet. But that is what Jesus taught. That's the Christian teaching. But you can see in the, 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 the um, story of the temptations how the big narrative, if you take it as a big narrative, makes a very big point. If you, if you get into the minutiae of which question was asked, how exactly did Jesus undo it? What was he saying? Who was the devil? What is the personality of the devil? Does he actually a person? That's all fine. That's great. Look at all that. But don't lose the big picture. It's a narrative that tells you the answer to evil is in reason and logic, which is what Jesus taught. That's a Christian Judea tradition. Now, today, I, I prayingly, hopefully think we are seeing just little, little sparks now of resistance coming out of uh, non-Christian groups. We're beginning to make statements about, do you know what? A Judeo-Christian culture is better than what we've got. And we're seeing people coming up saying things like that, little by little by little. I'm not going to give too many examples. Um, I think I've mentioned Jordan Peterson before, but he's certainly worth looking up and, and, and seeing where, where he's coming from. And he makes this very point about a Judeo-Christian culture. Um, this, this is what we're based upon. So, look at the uh, story of the temptation in a big way, and then say, what does it say about the culture we should live in? Now, let's come to the Christian, the t- sorry, to the Christmas story. It's not very popular at the moment. A lot of town councils are all trying to get rid of it. It used to be all over our stamps, um, you know, you used to go and buy a Christmas stamp and it had the nativity scenes on it, all gone. Christmas now in the West is replaced with tinsel and the odd tree and stars and Father Christmas. He's great, we can have Father Christmas, um, all that sort of stuff. But you, where is the nativity story? What's happened to it? Why is it being taken out? Because it offends everybody else? I don't think so. I really don't think so because I have not seen any objection from other, other religious groups about having uh, the, the nativity story. Because if they object to that, then someone's going to object to their stories. 
You know, you, you can drive around parts of Coventry at certain times of the year, and the whole place is lit up with all sorts of other cultural, if you like, um, ceremonies. Christmas time, you go downtown in Nuneaton, how many, it used to be 20 years ago, 10 minutes ago, there'd be every other shop would have a picture of a, 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 the, the Christmas story. It's not there. It's been taken away. Why? Is it just because it's Christian? I think if you start looking at this story, the whole Christmas story, in that big way, I've just looked at the temptations, and you see the underlying messages behind it, you end up with a very powerful Christian, Judeo-Christian message which lays down morality, it lays down culture, it lays down our whole approach to God and life in this Christmas story. So when we, over this next Christmas time, we're looking at the Christmas story, keep bringing yourself back and asking yourself, what's in that story? What does it tell me? You see, we're so used to being in a Christian Judo tradition that we don't ask ourselves, what would it be like if we weren't in a Christian Judo tradition? We, we can, so let's, we can work our way through it. Um, so I've got all the scriptures of the, of the uh, Christmas story written down here. Um, just so we, we, can, we can pick one and look at it. Um, let's, let's just start with, with, with the, 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 the birth story. The birth story. One, one of the things um, we have here is, I, I, I particularly like the bit in Luke one thirty six, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has da-da-da-da-da. But, wow, Elizabeth, remember Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. She's Mary's relative. That's worth just thinking about a second here, because God has done nothing by accident. Mary gets support from whom? Who's the first person Mary goes to for help? Her family. Her family. Look at the situation Mary's in. Okay? Mary is a young girl who's pregnant out of marriage in a society that doesn't necessarily have a very warm view of that sort of behavior. What was going to happen to her? When well, some plots of the, of the, of the, they would have stoned her, at least she would have been thrown out of society. She's in a desperate situation. No, we, we, we all know what happened. They didn't then. And it says Joseph, being an honorable man, looked quietly to put her to one side. So the law says she should be X. And Joseph tries to find a softer way for her. What is that telling us about the balance between law and individual? Joseph puts the individual and tries to protect her. And God helps him, and he goes to his family. What's that telling us about our culture? What should our culture be part of? Surely the family is part of our culture. The importance of family is part of the Judeo-Christian culture. It's here in the Christmas story, the importance of family. Something today which is trying to be taken away. The importance of family. I like the next bit in here. Um, it talks about uh, Elizabeth. 
And then it's got in here about saying of Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit came to her. Well, I had a quick read through the Gospels looking for the first sign, the first statement that the Holy Spirit falling on someone. And I think this is it. First, Mary um, is in a different situation. But here with Mary, with Elizabeth, it says the Holy Spirit came upon her and... So who was the first person in the Gospels to receive the Holy Spirit? A woman. Uh, That cuts across a lot of people's thinking. (laughs) But it's here in the Gospels. Take the big picture and sometimes just ask yourself the questions. The importance of family is established in the Gospel stories. The equality of the sexes is established in the Christmas stories. Mary needed Joseph's help. He put her on the donkey and he took her away. But she also needed the help of her family. So we're beginning to see a Judeo-Christian picture of the Gospels. If you want to think of any other little statements, just shout them out and we'll see how many we we can share. Let's look at... um, the fact that both Mark and so both Luke and Matthew go out of their way to show this was all in God's hands. God had already prepared this. We prayed at the start of, of this service, "Thy will be done." God's will be done. We're not here trying to bend God's law to us. We're trying to allow ourselves to go along with God's law. And it's God has a plan. Part of that plan included suffering. Because Herod killed the, the other children. There was suffering involved. So God allows suffering. But there was an answer. God had an answer. Do you see how this story unpacks all these big issues? The nature of suffering. The, 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 the nature of the society we're in the place of family, how Mary was, was a relative. Let's look at who um, was involved in this, Christian, in this early Christian story, this, this, this first story. Who was Joseph? What was his history? What was his genealogy? David. He was the descendant of David. He was the displaced king. If anyone had an axe to grind, it was Joseph, right? I should be king. <laughs> he should be going around whinging at the fact that I should be king. He was, the, he was, according to the genealogy, he was the descendant of David. So we've got royalty involved here. The displaced king. Okay, so Mary is the relative of uh, Elizabeth. And who is Elizabeth married to? The high priest. Or the guy whose job was to go into the temple at the time, not necessarily the high priest, but he, he was the guy who was... The, what does that make him? Pretty posh. Uh, if you like, I see this as the religious academic side. 
She had sufficient, um, sufficient authority in society, Elizabeth, by being married to um, Zacharias, to protect Mary, who would be seen as an adulterous woman deserving of being thrown out of society. So she had enough power to protect her relative, which is probably why Mary went there until the time she was due to be delivered. She was being protected. So she had a lot of, lot of power. So you've got displaced royalty, you've got social power, and then who does the angel appear to? Shepherds. Well, in just about all early um, Greek writings, shepherds are the lowest of the low. Because they smelt. Because they were out doing all the dirty stuff. Shepherds were not necessarily of a high status. So you've got the lowest of the low. And I particularly like the fact that the angels came to the shepherds. Because what does the angel signify in, in the big picture here? The angel is what? The, 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 the highest of the high. That they are, they are the supernatural and, and the lowest of the low. The, the, the shepherds who were, who, were, who were nothing. So all these people are brought in to the Christmas story. And what's the message here? The message is here in Christ there's an equality. That the, the, none of them were teach, treated differently by God. They exist. Yeah, Joseph was the displaced king. Mary was from a priestly academic, obviously pretty powerful family. You, you may be reading into this a little bit. So how on earth is Joseph betrothed to Mary? Because they would have only betrothed on a social equivalence here. So it's pretty obvious to me that, that, that Mary's family, or Elizabeth's family, marrying uh, Mary to Joseph, there was a recognition here. We're the, we're the high priestly people. You're the, the kingy people. Um, that's, that's fair. We're, we're, we're. So there's a sort of high status. This is a high status marriage. Okay, this isn't, you know, we get, sometimes get this story, a little donkey and Moses, you know, walking all in the cold and the frozen air. This is a high status marriage. And who's invited to the, to the birth? The lowest state, the lowest of the low, the shepherds. So God is saying, look, you might have your statuses in society, but before me, you're all equal. This is all in the Christmas story. This is all sets out the Judaistic uh, Christian culture that we are abandoning and giving over to these other cultures with their other, other problems. Who then, this is, this is a good one, who comes to visit the, the, the new baby. The Magi. Who are the Magi? We haven't got a clue. We don't know. But we do know what? That they were called Magi or wise men. Where did they come from? Other cultures. Okay, let's just say other cultures. They come from other cultures. And what did they bring with them? They brought with them some of those other cultures. There's this little bit which has caused a lot of problems for some Christians because they missed the point. Um, they followed, how did they get to him? This star. Oh, that means astrology is okay, yeah? <laughs> you can laugh, but I've seen Christians pull their hair out over this. You know, yeah, oh, it was fine. Astrology must be okay. Oh, it's only okay in certain circumstances. No, forget all that. They followed their culture, okay? They came because of their culture. And what did their culture do when it got to Jesus? Bowed down and called him 
God and king, yeah. So the, the wise men are different cultures coming from all over the world with their cultures and bringing gifts to the, to the Christ. Now, this is pretty, if, if you look at this just purely as a narrative, this is pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? You know, we're talking about um, the coming of God to earth to which every single class of, of human being is supposed to, to, to bend the knee to, and every culture is supposed to bend the knee to, bringing it a form of, of, of cultural structure and cultural message, all of which you can see in this, this gospel story. Leading to the, to the creation of a society that's bent upon certain ways, that runs in certain ways. Ah, you can begin to see why our um, multiculturalists would like to dispense with this story. Because it's not multicultural, is it? It's pretty clear what it's saying. So you, you, I'll leave you to, to, to go through all these other little points of the Christmas story and, and just use this, this, this way of looking at the big picture. Um, one of the other ones that I, I, I love is, is um, the, the, Jesus, the boy Jesus coming to the temple. I love that as, 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 as a message because it, it's, it's so true. It says he was 12. I suspect he was a precocious 12. <laughs> I suspect we've got early teenage here because they lose him. How do you lose it? You know, they go to the temple and, and, and they actually go back to, 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 to home before they realize they've lost him. What does that tell you? They must have been pretty used to him going off. So he's a 12-year-old lad. I'm not saying he's out of control here, because the scripture says he was a good lad, but there was certainly some challenge going on here, wasn't there? So you parents have got challenging teenagers. Um, Yeah, Mary and Joseph probably had the same sort of issues. You teenagers who want your independence, actually, in fact, you've got a bit of grounds here. Jesus took it. (laughs) Parents, see me afterwards. Okay. (laughs) It's a little little bit of... um, you know, you, you, but you can see the power shift going on here in this family, surely. Because just this wonderful bit, they, they got home before they realized he was missing. How did they get back? Well, probably it was, it was the time of the, um, uh, the, 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 the festival. So probably the whole village went together and the whole village came back. There's probably a big caravan of people going, a big caravan of people come back. And everybody assumes they were somebody else. Right? That's the only series I can think of. I, I can't think of, of Mary and Joseph saying, oh, we don't know where he is, we'll just go. You know, I don't think that happened. They just assume they're all there. But it shows you there's, there's a degree of, um, of personal space being allowed here. So, if you look at the big picture, you can begin to see that the culture behind it and the, the, the tensions behind it, because certainly they weren't very happy when they realized that Mary and Joseph weren't very happy when they realized he wasn't there. And Joseph had to go back and they found him. And when they find him, the answer Jesus gives is really, really, really... You can spend a lot of time thinking about this. It's a typical teenager answer, isn't it? Okay. I'm okay. What's your problem? Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? Now, well, people, we've unpacked that, yes, he's saying, all, yeah, all the wonderful stuff. But at the end of the day, who's he thinking of? Purely himself. He's not thinking about his poor parents who are pulling their hair out, wondering where he is. 
getting all worried. It's a typical teenage answer. Uh, I'm fine. What's the problem? It's all here in the Gospels. You know, this is where, when people start saying the Gospels were all constructed and all made up by some academics, it's too true to life. It really is. I I love that story. Um, And then, of course, there is a hint here, more than a hint, I think, if you read it, that this was what was going on. And verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Parents who've got teenage kids, I know we have a few back there, and I know you've all got more brains than me, but even so, um, parents, yes, they are going to be challenging, but they are going to increase in wisdom and stature in favour with God and man. So give them a chance to do so. Tell them off afterwards. I'm going to see my grandchildren this weekend, and they, got a, they won't be messing me around too much. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> all right, so uh, what I'm inviting you to do is, is to look at the gospel story in a big picture. Take the narrative stories and ask yourself how those narrative stories show us about the culture that God wants us to live in. Not right and wrong. I'm not going to give you, um, this is right, this is wrong. I'm just going to say the cultural story, the narrative gives this, imp- gives this impression. Here is the narrative. Every sort of social cultural group was involved in the nativity. And everyone came to bow their knee to, to Jesus. That's, that's amazing. And let's go back to where we started from, the idea of this multiculturalism or, or whatever. The answer to e- evil, the answer to the attacks that we as Christians are facing in, at the moment in, in, in our societies, is not to be aggressive, it's not to be angry, it's not to be cross, it's to reply with the simple, logical truth which is what Jesus did. And that has stood the Christian gospel in good standing for, over, for, for 2,000 years. And it will continue to do so until the law comes. We need to, 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 re, to be bolder about our truth and firmer about our truth. But we can be confident by being gentle. We can be confident without being aggressive. We can be confident without being fearful. Because God is in that truth. Let's stand up and defend, excuse me, defend our Christmas story. So go home, put, <coughs> put up your little cribs, get out your little plaster Paris things, put them all out, and when people come to your house, say, yes, that's the Christmas story. This is what it teaches. It teaches about God who came to earth as a baby who supported the idea of family, who lived amongst us, not only saved us from our future sin, but showed us how to live in this present society. That's a wonderful message. Father, we thank you for your uh, love to us, your grace to us, that you came to us as a child into a family and uh, showed us how to live. We can look to that as a message now. We pray for our culture. We pray for our society. We thank you for our Christian message and ask that you give us confidence and boldness to proclaim it. Amen.